Hi everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wild, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rockrout. And today we are celebrating spooky season, October, it's almost Halloween, and we're doing a little themed episode on cinematic vampires. Our main event will be talking about Francis Ford Coppola's film, Bram Stoker's Dracula, But before we get into that, we'll talk about a film from 1922, Nosferatu, A Symphony of Terror. And we will tease some upcoming vampire films as well. I love that we're finally in spooky season. We have The Exorcist out, which we'll be talking about some of those earlier films soon. And revisiting everything from the past. I watched my favorite Texas Chainsaw (laughs) with my friends this past weekend oh my God, yeah, you did. and the original exorcist because we're all going to see that later this week so it's just fun getting back into that spirit and with nightmare before christmas having its 30th anniversary and being shown in theaters again soon i'm excited for that so i like that we're talking about dracula and these vampire movies i think looking back at a movie that was made over 100 years ago and to see the evolution of this character and where it started with certain actors I think is really cool just to look so far I mean we have almost a hundred films on this one character so to see it done in so many different ways silly scary funny you know it kind of mirrors how Hollywood has evolved too and also just world cinema because obviously Nosferatu is from Germany so We get to see different perspectives of this character. And Coppola's version is just so elegant and exquisite. So I'm excited to talk about that one later on. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited too because we actually haven't talked about any silent films. I mean, I rave about Caligari all the time, but... I know. But we haven't done a full episode on any. It's really just pre-Oscars. So it's hard. Yeah. I mean, there are some early Oscars films like Wings and whatnot. But yeah, I like revisiting the old stuff. I think that's why I kind of pushed for this too. Just to see what you think of them and and to talk about the film history of it all. Yeah, no, I I love this period. I think it's such an interesting time. It's just, yeah, like you said, we're kind of wedded to our Oscars theme, but we can get creative with it, I think, and cover some other features just like we are today. So um, Nosferatu, A Symphony of Terror from 1922. This was directed by F.W. Murnau, who is known as one of the greatest directors throughout film history. The key performance here is Max Schreck as Count Orlock. And they actually changed the name here away from Dracula. So we have in other versions, they'll mix up the name a little bit. But here... Um, They don't use the name Dracula because at the time it made more sense for German audiences to have a name that they might be more familiar with. This was a low budget film and in order for it to connect more with audiences, they decided to go this route and rename the character. Was this your first time watching Nosferatu and what did you think of it? I think this was my first time. I'm not entirely sure. It was probably a long time ago. I just think of Caligari when I think of German horror silent films and i know there are others i've seen haxen which was from that same year on the criterion channel right now all of these really spooky witchy dark satanic silent films which is fun to see Mm -hmm. it go there but nosferatu this one in particular was the unofficial 
film version of the novel, which is why they also changed certain characters' names. But I liked it. I think it uses all of those early elements of film well. There are a lot of title cards, which is just how it was. But I think using the different colors to signify the time of day of the color of the film stock, like blue or yellow or green. And some of the effects I really liked. It really incorporates shadows and really interesting cinematography that lends to German expressionism. And I think on the whole, like it works as a scary movie. There are certain shots that are super memorable. And I think Max Schreck as Nosferatu is an incredible way to start this character. What did you think of Nosferatu? Had you seen this before? I actually had not seen it before, oddly enough. I had also seen The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I've also seen Haxen and some of these really old, dark Mm -hmm. horror films. I do really love them, and I had a great time watching this. I think that going back in time and getting to really experience the ways in which a film like this was crafted, it's just an exciting experience as someone who loves film, you know, getting to see how well a lot of it holds up to and how good it looks. I think that for being over a hundred years old and also thinking about how this film was almost lost to history because of the lawsuit with Stoker's wife, who ended up suing the producers of the film for using the novel Dracula as their source material um, without getting proper permission. But so that then led to it to be altered um, for a different release. So the original uncut version is really special. But I agree with you. I think that Max Schreck's performance is the highlight of the film. He's very scary. I think the creature design is really, really smart. And when I think of this character now, I will always think of his nails Mm -hmm. and his fingers and how the hands work. And you can almost envision his fingernails and these long, right, like spindly, spiky fingers as his teeth in a way, right? It's kind of like another, when you think of vampires, you always think of their teeth and biting their victims. But here, I think his hands and those pointy fingers are even scarier, really. And just the way he walks around is... I think it's just it's a it's an incredible performance and to have something like that so early before we had any other iteration of the character mm-hmm. I think is so exciting to see. Yeah, it's the posture, the hands especially for me too. I really mm-hmm. associate those with his character and I think that's something that translates to the next movie we'll talk about too, but the mm-hmm. way they capture him not only in different angles but again the shadows and capturing Mm -hmm. him walking up the steps or just the hands and how he places them on Ellen. It's really eerie and makes your skin crawl. The German sensibility too and the the shadows that you're mentioning. I think that those also influenced Coppola for his film and just how strangely they appear, but also how unsettling they can make you feel when you're seeing the character and then seeing the shadow and the relationship between the two. And another thing that Murnau did just before I think we move on to 
the other films that we'll talk about is that he shot a lot of the film on location. And I think you can tell through the film's exteriors that they're not on a soundstage. That definitely adds to it. I agree. And whether those buildings, like when Renfield tells Hutter to, you know, show Orlock the houses next door to him, and it just looks so European. These buildings are so tall and thin, kind of like Count Orlock is, and all of the windows are blown. There's nobody living inside, obviously. They're abandoned, and you just get this feeling that something isn't right. And so for someone to want to live there is like, "Mm, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But he goes, he's so excited, Mm -hmm. and Ellen is really worried. And I think what I like about the adaptation and some of the adaptations we've gotten over the years is that it sticks to these key points. And I guess specifically Coppola's here of Hutter going off and, you know, that's Jonathan in Bram Stoker's Dracula and then Ellen being afraid and that's how Mina feels about him. So there are a lot of these key plot points that you can ground yourself with in this story. Whereas I think over the years, in the past 100 years, We've seen quite a few variations and a lot of people taking major liberties with the source material, but this one, and I think part of that is the name, you know, including Bram Stoker's before Dracula, Coppola had done that before with like Mario Puzo's The Godfather, but I think that helps you key into the story a little bit better. Do you have any favorite other Dracula movies like are you a fan of monster horror films generally or I it really depends I would say that monster horror films aren't my favorite kind of horror film but I think that Dracula is my favorite of the different types of monsters that we get in classic horror films or in adaptations I think that's because I find vampires really scary I used to not growing up because I grew up reading Twilight and if you read those books it's very difficult to be afraid of vampires especially when you're excited to see sparkling Robert Pattinson get out of the Mm -hmm. car because you were a sophomore in high school so I wasn't scared for a while of them but then I read Salem's Lot by Stephen King and that book terrified me and gave me an entirely new outlook on vampires in particular I think and I think though for me my favorite adaptation is the Coppola one there is a lot that I love about that movie and I actually had just watched it for the first time this year and that shocked a number of people when I told them that I had never seen it until this year because they all said to me this feels like a movie that you would really like especially in its design how gothic it is how over the top and lush right the costumes and production design are and I love horror but I had never seen it and it completely blew me away my first time seeing it was in a theater which I think definitely helped but yeah I think of all of the adaptations that one is definitely my favorite what about you I'm not big on monster movies I think I veer towards Mm -hmm. the psychological or slashers I mean we can't call like Leatherface a monster right You are so on this Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing today. You need to tell the listeners, though, which version you like, just in case they're new for this episode. Well, I mentioned before, go listen to our horror movie draft episode. But 
the Jessica Biel version is superior to me. I think at least in remakes, I am horrified over and over by some of the scares from this movie. I, I mentioned earlier that I watched it recently and... I think some of it doesn't work maybe as well as I thought it did. There's a lot of lead up to the situation and the Texas Chainsaw story. But yeah, I definitely recommend it. If you need a new horror movie to watch, if you haven't seen it before, I think it's fun. But yeah, not too big on monsters. And maybe I'm not entirely sure why. But I will say that Bram Stoker's Dracula is by far the most beautiful that I've seen done. It isn't really horror. It's definitely a little scary, but it's more artistic than anything. And I like that Coppola's hits on some of those themes from the original Nosferatu, which some of the others don't. Yeah, and I think just mentioning some of the others quickly that people can watch, but that we won't talk about in depth today. I think a lot of people, when they think of Dracula... They think of the film from 1931 starring Bela Lugosi that I think is a key moment in monster movies, right? Universal got the rights to Dracula and that film is a very particular type of monster film. And they also had the Frankenstein series too. So I think when you think back to that time, that's how a lot of people think of Dracula and Frankenstein as well, of course. We might return to talking about Frankenstein when we talk about poor things this year. The new Yorgos Lanthimos film. We have Werner Herzog's Nosferatu, which came out in 1979. I do not love this version. Oh, I've never seen it, but I've been intrigued. Yeah, the 1922 version, I think, after watching that, is far superior. But I do, I do like Herzog quite a bit, but I don't think it's... As fun as as the Murnau silent film. And of course, there's also John Badham's Dracula. I mean, so many people have gone into this character over the years. And other vampires, of course, are explored throughout film and TV, really. It's a very popular trope and type of character. But we also have two new films coming out to be excited for. We have Robert Eggers' Nosferatu, which I think he's the perfect director to take this on I feel like after the Northman and the witch I don't like the lighthouse as well but I think specifically with the Northman how he's able to access these particular worlds and really pack in so much historical detail that's what I'm excited for I want to see that German expressionism or if he moves the story to London like many adaptations do Mm -hmm what that looks like in that time period. I think he will nail it. Absolutely. So for that one, we were supposed to have Anya Taylor-Joy and Willem Dafoe. I think Anya left and got replaced by Lily Rose Depp. But the whole cast is great. We have Bill Skarsgård playing Count Orlock, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Nicholas Holt, Willem Dafoe, and Emma Corrin. So we have a very hot cast coming in to play this really spooky movie. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think... With what we have from Eggers, this is definitely going to be edgy. And then we have Chloe Zhao also directing a Dracula, this like vampire Western, which I'm curious Mm -hmm. about. I'm really excited for this. I hope it happens, especially because imagining Dracula in a Western setting is very exciting to me. I think that's pretty scary. If you think of him in a remote area 
you make the character possibly some sort of symbol of Americana. I find that to be a -hmm. fascinating idea. I know she's a very meditative filmmaker, so I'm curious to see how she would handle the the Mm -hmm. gore and the horror of a vampire. So I hope it happens too. I wonder if that one will be black and white as well. We also, just to mention another vampire movie that's out this year, Pablo Lorraine's film El Conde, which we talked about briefly on the Telluride episode. This film imagines dictators as vampires, which is a a great concept, and it's photographed beautifully by Ed Lockman, and it's on Netflix right now if you want to watch it. Talking about recent ones, have you seen the other ones from earlier this year, Renfield or The Last Voyage of the Demeter? I didn't see The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Renfield (laughs) really (laughs) fell flat for me. Did you see Renfield? I didn't see either of these. But I think that you seeing Renfield is really funny. (laughs) Well, I told you, I think vampires are scary. And the idea of Nicolas Cage as Dracula, that was intriguing to me, I think, to say the least. But I thought that his performance was very campy Mm -hmm. and honestly pretty funny at times. But one of the weirdest things about the movie is that it just, it feels to me like it was made in... 2007 like the jokes are very Mm. dated it just it feels like it was made in another time or almost like it's a meme not a movie it was very upsetting i did not have a good time watching it and i like nicholas holt too he plays renfield and having just seen coppola's film i knew the characters Mm -hmm. i was ready for it and it was just not a good time it's never good when campy movies aren't actually fun And there's only, like, one performance or aspect that you can really enjoy about the experience. And, yeah, that's how I felt about Renfield. But I did not see The Last Voyage of Demeter. Yeah, maybe I'll check out the latter if it's streaming. But, yeah, I was just curious. But I think these are some of those that are, again, taking liberties with the material and kind of veering on a different path. But... Yeah, let's get into Bram Stoker's Dracula. Description here, the centuries-old vampire Count Dracula comes to England to seduce his barrister Jonathan Harker's fiancée, Mina Murray, and inflict havoc in the foreign land. This was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It stars Gary Oldman, Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder, Anthony Hopkins, and more. This won three Oscars for costume design, makeup, and effects, sound effects editing and was also nominated for Art Direction Set Decoration. So you saw this this year. Embarrassingly, this was the fourth time I had seen the first half of the movie. Oh my god. In I need more different on this. settings, like <laughs> on a plane or just streaming. I don't know why I could never make it past. Because it wasn't because it was boring I think I was Mm -hmm. just not in the right mindset or distracted because I loved finishing this movie. I do think the first half maybe does have some of those starker, more elegant filming choices, but it Mm -hmm. definitely continues into the second half. And I love the acting. I love so many things about this. But what do you like about this version of Dracula? I think that there's so much to really love about it. I think the first thing is that it's a Coppola film. And when you're looking at the filmography of someone like Francis Ford Coppola, who has made masterpieces like The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, Apocalypse Now, 
the conversation. On paper, this is quite an odd choice for him, right? To pursue this story, to want to make this incredibly stylish, colorful take on a classic tale. When you dig into it and you actually watch the film, I think it becomes much clearer why someone like Coppola would be drawn to this world and would choose to adapt the story in this way. I love how 90s it feels. It feels so of its time period. And I love period films. I love costume dramas. And at first glance, I think this could appear to be something like a more traditional period film or costume drama. If you just look at photos of the sets where you see Winona Ryder, for instance, it's not that far off from something like The Age of Innocence. But in execution, it is wild and it has moments of camp and it has, I would say, it is a very sexual film and it addresses the competing sexual politics at the different time periods that are covered within the film. And it's just a fun watch for me. I like how overstuffed it is. I like that it's this huge swing from a man known for his precision, but also his romanticism and elegance in his filmmaking. And I think he he leans on that romanticism here, but really cranks it up and understands horror in a way that might be different from some of his contemporaries. So I really, again, enjoyed my experience watching this. And I saw that it was playing at a rep screening again here, and I was really tempted to go this week. And I would have if I didn't have a competing screening already booked at the same time. (laughs) Because I just love the visuals of the world. I think that cinema is a visual experience, and the aesthetics of this film are overboard, yes, but they're just what I love to look at. I love the colors. I love the costumes. I want to wear so many of the things in this movie, even though I never could. So yeah, I really, really enjoy this and think it's so much fun to watch. Seeing this in a theater is really the only way to watch it. I think being on Mm -hmm. a big screen, you get to appreciate all those elements more, especially the ones it was nominated for. So Art Direction, Pristine, sound effects editing the sound is wonderful the cinematography everything that we get and that we've talked about so far with Nosferatu we get here to an even greater extent also the acting the costume so I highly recommend it if you do have a screening around you to see this in a theater but I just love I love how it evolves like I said you know what the story is from this character but it starts as an epic when we do this prologue of Count Vlad and seeing what happened to Elisabetta at the time. And then you get the title card and you know it's going to be a big movie. And then you get into this romance. You meet Mina and Jonathan, the Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves characters. Very young. They look so great. I mean, they're in their Mm -hmm. prime. I love that Coppola said he needed to hire a really hot, actor so that it would bring in the female audience and I think that works here with a really young Keanu there were a lot of critics that hated his accent and he said that he struggled with it too but 
you know, then the film evolves. We get these horror elements, like when Dracula licks that razor, one of the most Mm -hmm. eerie things in the movie. And then just all of the elements. Then you experience the story and it just takes you on this adventure. And that's what I love so much. And I love, you know, you've talked about going to London and Transylvania and traveling between the two and I think intercutting between those stories too. I think it works. Again, a lot of people had trouble with some of the plot holes and the story development, but I come here for the visuals and I stay for the visuals. I don't care Mm -hmm. if there are certain things that don't make sense. I kind of overlook them very quickly as I'm watching. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And actually this year, when I have time, I want to actually read the novel because I've never read it before. But I know that I'm going to picture (laughs) this world specifically. (laughs) And I'll use that book, I think, to fill in any gaps. But yeah, this is a complete visual experience. And I will defend Keanu Reeves' performance a little bit. (laughs) I don't think it's groundbreaking by any means. But I think that Harker is a completely oblivious character. Like, if you think about how he just stays behind and Dracula is then suddenly, you know, out in London where he finds Mina because she looks exactly like Elisabetta. Meanwhile, Harker has no idea what's happening. And Keanu is so good at playing, like, a beautiful, oblivious boy. Perfect casting Mm -hmm. by Coppola, I think, there. But... Yeah, I, I absolutely love the opening, too, right? Taking us to Transylvania in the mid-15th century. That's the perfect way to open it. It makes it feel like it's completely otherworldly. The reds are so bright. It's so violent and gruesome. It almost, though, looks like a music video to me. It doesn't feel like it's a part of our world because of the way that Coppola stages the scenes and the ways in which the actors are playing off of each other. It's a completely different style than you might actually expect. And then when we move forward to London and we jump really far ahead, right? We're almost to the 1900s here at this point and the politics are completely different. The world is beautiful, but much more drab. The color palette is completely different and It's also a much more staid, moralistic world. Talking about the sexual politics of the time, we see in the first two moments, basically, in the film, in these two time periods, that there's a major difference between 19th century England and the passionate past shared by Dracula and Elisabetta and their world in Transylvania, which then creates, I think, this this core conflict that exists throughout the movie. And it also paves the way for the scenes with the Lucy character, who is this sort of out-of-place, sexualized woman in London at the time, who's very different from, I think, her, her peers and the way that she flirts with the men around her and reacts to their advances. It's very, very different from what I think was socially acceptable in some circles at the time. And I think when we meet her is when she comes into Mina writing Jonathan a letter and she mm-hmm. has the copy of Arabian Nights on her desk and it like falls open and they look at all of these pictures and kind of 
snicker and like how do you do that so Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's one of the things I mentioned earlier of like this is one of those original themes of sexual repression especially for females so for this to at least touch on that I think was impressive for Coppola's vision and I think why these characters work here because we don't really have a Lucy character in the original but she sticks out so strongly here I love all of her scenes like when Van Helsing Anthony Hopkins is looking at her fangs and realizing what is happening and he's the first one to say Nosferatu and later Lucy does she goes she is vampire Nosferatu so that's kind of spooky but her scenes incorporate some of those really cool film elements some of those visual effects too Mm -hmm. like later when she sneaks back into her coffin you know she's supposed to be dead and they uncover the grave and she's not there that was done in reverse or at least they showed it in reverse which some of these things I think you can pick up on which is maybe part of the 90s element of it yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you also mentioned the book version and there was one comparison that I thought was really cool is that in the beginning when we're in Transylvania and we're going to the castle the first time you see these blue lights floating and you Mm -hmm. don't really know what that is but that was from the book and it was where one night every year these lights would emanate and it was over treasure so these people would like mark these spots where this was happening and go back and try to dig up treasure so I think even if they don't explain some of those things, I like that they're incorporating the original story for the diehards or the people who have read the novel. I really like that. And that's one of like many really, I think, unique techniques that Coppola incorporates. I love, in a similar way to the movements of Max Schreck in Nosferatu, I love the ways that the camera captures Gary Oldman's Dracula moving. The one where he like scurries oh. up the side of the building. <laughs> oh my God. Just the way the camera angles of that scene. It's just so, it's disturbing. You're seeing something that doesn't make sense when you're thinking about the rules of our world. And he also cuts in, you know, different maps and there's a lot of double exposure and the way that blood is used. It's just, again, like you said, we come to this movie for the visual experience. Mm-hmm. dazzling images on the silver screen <laughs> and there are plenty of those in this adaptation i guess let's talk about gary oldman's performance for a second because him as dracula i think is magnificent i love that moment of him crawling outside the window but jonathan sees him i feel like it's a moment when he shouldn't be seen but a lot of the moments with him too his shadow is disconnected from him So that kind of gears you into realizing he's this other being. He's so unnatural. And in other moments, you see him floating instead of walking. So I love that he's so unpredictable at times. There are moments when they're together. And and I think as the movie goes on, you get to see him in so many different prosthetics and versions of himself. He sheds the makeup and the wigs for... A young Gary Oldman and then in other times he has this really ghoulish prosthetic on when he's upset or angry so I think he's able to as an actor go in and out of the different versions of Dracula really well 
depending on who mm-hmm. he's with, whether it be Jonathan or Mina or, you know, trying to stave off Van Helsing and the three men. I think that's maybe a 90s thing, but a very unserious moment when they're all three together, all of Lucy's mm-hmm. men. <laughs> <laughs> I also just love everything that has to do with Lucy, of course. She is played, by the way, by Sadie Frost. And just all of her costumes, the way that she is reacting to becoming a vampire. I mean, I I do always feel sad for her character that this is happening to her, but it is so much fun to watch. I think that she really, really plays it up well. And I feel that, yeah, as far as performances go too, Winona Ryder, I love her in many 90s films, but... I love that she was able to do this after leaving The Godfather Part 3. And that role famously went to Sofia Coppola. I love Sofia Coppola, but Winona Ryder would have been much stronger in that role, for sure. Um, but I'm I'm very happy she's here. I think it's this, this sort of, I would say, genteel character. It's a more emotional romance. And I think her work across that genre is really beautiful throughout the 90s in particular yeah i like how in the beginning it's almost shakespearean this love element Mm -hmm. at least in the prologue but then also with mina and jonathan but that's just kind of one of the other elements that i enjoyed in seeing like the catholicism the religion of it and the romance of the victorian era So now I think let's get into some of our questions so we can talk a little bit about the Oscars this year and how this movie did. So do you think that anything was snubbed? So I think if there was any acting nomination here, it'd be Gary Oldman. And I would definitely allow it. Mm -hmm. We need to stop trying to make Scent of a Woman happen. Oh my gosh. And I understand that this was his time and... We've covered this on a different episode, but I think a nomination would still be possible. Mm -hmm. We also had Robert Downey Jr. from Chaplin, Clint Eastwood from Unforgiven, Stephen Rea from The Crying Game, and Denzel from Malcolm X. I like the nominations and wins that it got, but I kind of also would have nominated it for screenplay. Mm -hmm. I think what they did with the script here was really phenomenal for an adaptation. Do you have any others that you would also nominate? Yeah, I mean, I personally would give Coppola a nomination in Best Director. (laughs) I think this movie is really well directed. I love the creative flourishes that are a part of it. It feels like such a necessary entry in his filmography now. And I know it's not as clean and precise, maybe, as some of his other films, but... I don't know. I just feel like there's a there's a playfulness to it. There's a darkness in the understanding of the material and in the collaborative process. And I just love the idea, you know, of a director who takes a big swing and it's not fully appreciated in his time, you know, going back and retroactively giving that person a nomination. Let's kick out Martin Brest for Scent of a Woman. We don't need that nomination I love for it. that movie. I'm obviously going to keep Robert Altman for The Player, James Ivory for Howard's End, and I'll keep Eastwood for Unforgiven. I do like Unforgiven. We have some wiggle room here. I would say Spike Lee for Malcolm X. Let's just have that be the five. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a good 
group we can just stick with. I think if we're doing that, let's just put it in picture and switch it out with Scent of a Woman well, too. Well, that too. Exactly. <laughs> let's let's do that. Picture was one of my other ones I was thinking about for snubs okay. because I would absolutely nominate this for best picture when you're thinking about the movies of the year. There are some good hidden gems in this Oscar year, but there are also some there are also a few duds here and there. So, I think there's plenty of room for Coppola's Dracula here. I definitely agree. How do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I kind of think they would receive it in the same way. They would give it some craft nominations, maybe even some wins. I think they might respond similarly to how they looked at something like Nightmare Alley, for instance, like something that's period. It's, you know, it has horror elements to it. It's a little weird, but it's made by an auteur. So they don't fully embrace it, but they give it a few nominations here or there. I could kind of see it performing similarly to that. I think that movie is a lot colder. It's not as fun as this and not as outlandish and risky. But I think I could see today's Academy embracing it in a similar way to that. What about you? See, I was thinking of a different Del Toro film, The Shape of Water. Oh, they would have really, really gone for it. Well, so I think it's somewhere in between those two. Okay. But also maybe on how they might look at poor things later. Again, this is one you've seen I haven't. Mm -hmm. But it has some of those elements. You mentioned Frankenstein earlier. And I do agree that they would probably veer towards just giving it text. But I think acting nominations are possible. I think some of the bigger categories could happen. I mean, this year, but... Yes, with The Shape of Water, that obviously took the top prize. So I think it's somewhere in between. Yeah. I think it might get a little bit more love depending on how weird it is and if it was by an auteur. Yeah. I do think this is the type of film where if it came out today, we would all be pulling our hair out, trying to figure out if it was going to get into adapted screenplay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that's the big one where no one would be sure and we would just be fighting about it until the very end when we saw the Mm -hmm. nominations, even though I think that would be a well-deserved nomination. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? So my choices really do come from its nominations. I would maybe add in cinematography too, but for me, it's art direction, set decoration, Because of the production designers, Dante Ferretti and Thomas Sanders, I think what they do in creating this really dark Victorian mood is so incredible. One of my favorite period films, too. I will say that. I was going to mention this and say that it's (laughs) shocking to me in some respects that you love this because it's a period film and there's a romance at the center of it. So... On paper, it's very much a me movie, but I'm happy that you ended up really liking it. Similarly, The Taste of Things, which <gasps> oh my I God. loved. Yes. It's and the whole so time good. I was like, this is a period movie. There's so much romance. Why do I like this so much? But I thought of you during that, too. Oh, I did love. I really loved that movie. I'm excited to talk oh, about good. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to. But again, with the scenery, I think the shadows add into the production design, but the way that the walls actually move during certain scenes 
and the way that the actors move. It's just amazing when you realize that you're watching something so beautiful and it continuously happens frame after frame. So yeah, I give it to them. And it's definitely one of the main reasons I want to return to this next year, probably every year, every Halloween season. What would you give it? So I'm going to give it, as of this year, since watching this film, my favorite win in the category's history, which is costume design. Mm. I'm so serious when I say I think this is the best costume (laughs) design win we've ever had. So the costume designer, Iko Ishioka, she hadn't really worked on many films before as a costume designer or a production designer, but Coppola really put a lot on her shoulders and trusted her all the same. So she actually designed the poster for Apocalypse Now. And so Coppola thought she had this really interesting visual aesthetic and creative eye and that she could do a great job with the costumes. And there's this wonderful documentary. It's on YouTube and it's called The Costumes Are the Sets. And Coppola actually talks about this, how he considered the costumes to be really influential on the production design for the movie. He looked at the costumes first when he was considering the visual world of the film and how important these were. And and Ishioka, in designing these costumes, she looked at so many different contemporary texts and cultures to determine how she wanted these characters to look and what she wanted vampires or the undead to actually represent. So she looked to anime, she looked to drag, she looked to musicians, she looked to so many different things. And the main reason that she did this was because she believed that kind of like what we were talking about before about how these two time periods and these two different settings the Victorian London and this Transylvania of the past, she believed that they were always kind of in contrast to each other and they were always in opposition to each other. So she wanted to think about vampires and Dracula as a symbol of deviance. And that's what she was inspired by for the costumes. And mainly she wanted to think about a hybrid culture, she says, of where East meets West and how in the West, they viewed the East and Eastern influences as a threat, especially Victorian people at the time. So she used those Victorian ideas to inspire the looks of the costumes of Dracula, which is so smart. And the costume that I think of most frequently, aside from Lucy's incredible dresses and collars, is Dracula's armor. So he has this armor that he wears that's bright red at the beginning and it looks almost like a flayed man or exposed muscles and she was that's what she was inspired by like thinking about creating something that looked like armor yes but also looked like raw meat and worms and just different kinds of gross things that she could have you know on that So she has so many different cool things that she brings into it that inspire the politics and the sexuality of the films, the way that she looks at gowns and veils and headpieces and how they're all sort of inspired by different cultures around the world and how Victorian people would be threatened by those cultures, I think is 
it's just thinking about costumes and costume design in a really different way. And yeah, I could talk about this for a very long time, but go watch the documentary. It's fascinating and it's on YouTube, the whole thing. I love that. I definitely will check that out. And we also, I think it's fair to say, recommend both of the films that we talked about today. Nosferatu is free on Tubi, so you can watch that there. And Bram Stoker's Dracula is available on Pluto TV for free, or you can rent it or get the physical media. I would love a Criterion edition of this, just putting that out there into Mm -hmm. the ether. But it was fun talking about these and vampire movies or Dracula-inspired movies as a whole. Yeah, I love that we did too and broke down Bram Stoker's Dracula a bit more. We'll have to revisit some old silent maybe horror, maybe other genres later in this season or next year. But yeah, I love these and this will be in my rotation for years to come. I'm so happy to hear that. We found a period film for you. Next week on Oscar Wilde, we will be talking about our experiences at the New York Film Festival. At the moment of recording, New York Film Festival is still going on. It is a 17-day marathon of a festival. They show over 100 films from all over the world. And I can say that up to this point, I've, of course, just had a wonderful experience going up to Lincoln Center seeing some of these movies, and I am so excited to talk about the highs and the lows of what I've seen at the festival so far this year. I feel like taking the train up to Lincoln Center is embedded in my brain. I could be unconscious and still do it at this point, yeah. just for uh-huh. how much we've been up there. <laughs> so, <laughs> But I do agree. I love this festival i love what it represents and the films that they show and i'm excited to talk about it i feel like we've both seen quite a few and some different from others so we will definitely be covering many of these next week and then we'll save a few of the big ones for later in the season when we do some award season check-ins but next week we will also be featuring anatomy of a fall we'll be reviewing that film because that was a Big release, yes, beforehand out of Cannes and other festivals, but here at New York. So we'll be diving deep into that one as well. I can't wait to talk about Anatomy of a Fall. One of my favorite movies of the year so far. I really love it. Now that you've seen it, yes. Oh my God. When you texted me, I was so excited. I was like, wait, I can't wait to discuss with you. I was on a high walking out. I had one of those experiences (laughs) where I walked five blocks without realizing it. Which happens to me a lot after this festival. I just wind up at Columbus Circle and I think, how did I get here? (laughs) What happened? (laughs) And this was one of those movies. Yeah, I loved it and I can't wait to see it again. I'm going again this weekend and I can't wait to see what I missed. I think it's definitely Mm -hmm. a movie that rewards multiple viewings. And oh my God, Sandra Hewler's performance is on another level. She is my Kate Blanchett and Tar. Of the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening. Feel free to rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod. And stay tuned for more content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. We have an episode on Marty coming with the King of Comedy and Mean Streets. And then we have another one coming with special guest Cody Derricks on The Exorcist's original trilogy. <laughs> 
I'm laughing just because it's going to be very funny because we are also going to touch on the exorcist believer. Yes. The camp of David Gordon Green. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 